Because he's at work, God is aware of everything. He's aware of everything that's going on. I like the story about um, a table that was in the school cafeteria for an elementary school, and one of the teachers had placed a big bowl of uh, big, bright, red, juicy apples on the table, but uh, obviously it was limited, and so she'd put a sign beside the bowl of apples that said, uh, one, take one apple only, remember God is watching. And so at the end of the table, there was also, uh, they had just brought out of the oven a, a big plate of fresh baked chocolate chip cookies. And, and there was a sign by it as well, and you could see that the sign was written in a child's handwriting, and the sign next to the chocolate chip cookies said, take all the cookies you want, God is watching the apples. <laughs> well, the fact is, God sees it all, doesn't He? God's watching uh, everything and everything about our life. And you know, we live in an age today that has almost become paranoid with the amount of surveillance that's going on, right? Do you, do you ever worry about, uh, you know, all the surveillance in your phones and your iPads and, you know, and now, you know, when the, the device companies do their commercials, one of the selling points for their devices is security, right? They talk about how secure your data is or uh, whatever information you've put in. And, and, and ironically, the companies that are telling you that these devices are so secure and everything are also the same people that can track and monitor you anywhere you go. You know, it's kind of, kind of weird. But we live in the kind of age where, where there's this, uh, this uh, overemphasis sometimes on um, what's, what's surveying us. You know, in cities in Europe, like London, for example, they have video cameras where there's hardly a street in the city that is not videoed. And they use it against uh, uh, crime in the cities, but everything's being watched. Everything's being watched. And so we are concerned uh, about those things, and, and rightfully so, I might add. And yet, uh, I think there's uh, something ironic about all of this. And that is that we're so concerned about our personal privacy and the fact that other people can monitor or watch or see, but we never think about that when it comes to God, do we? We never think about the fact that God is always watching. God knows and sees everything. In fact, have you ever thought how different your life might be if, God, if you were consciously aware of how aware God is of you? If you were consciously aware of the fact that God knows what you do in the dark, He knows what you do in the light, that God knows everything about you, He knows what's inside your heart, He knows what's inside your head, how different would your life be lived if you consciously lived with that idea and His awareness in mind? Well, in this series that God is up to something big, um, we need to be aware of God's awareness. And that's what I want to really talk to you about uh, this morning. And I want to share with you from a, a part of the story of what God is up to involved the lives of some, some wicked guys. But they thought God wasn't watching. But God was watching. And God was watching because uh, God was doing something. Something they didn't know initially but that God was doing. If you're physically able to do so, would you stand with me as we read our passage this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. 
This is what the Scripture says. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any uh, man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come, and while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now, Father, would you open our hearts this morning to your word? Would you speak to us, Father, and would you remind us as we study this text that you are aware, you are always aware, you are always watching, and Father, you know everything about us. And so, Father, would you speak to us then? And Father, would you uh, call us to uh, a new walk, a new way? Father, would you encourage us, Father, to trust you, knowing that you are watching and that you do see? And Father, would you uh, change us and challenge us, Father, in the areas that we most need your correction? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me give you some, some background of what's going on here. Maybe you've read the story of Eli. Eli was the priest. Hophni and Phinehas were his sons. Uh, Eli uh, had not done a good job as a priest in, in Israel over the decades of his leadership. And this was before the days when they had a king. And so the, the priest uh, acted kind of as a, almost not just a spiritual leader, but a governmental leader because their link there, as I'll mention in just a few moments, uh, there was a link between government and God. In, uh, it wasn't separation of church and state. It was church and state, if you want to uh, think of it that way, with, with Israel and God. And Eli hadn't done a very good job as the priest. And he, under his leadership, Israel had declined terribly, spiritually terribly. And then he had these sons, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were wicked. In fact, the Bible describes them there, as we'll, we'll see. It's just worthless. They were, they were good for nothing, and they were very self-serving in all they, they did. And Eli and his sons were responsible for the degradation of the nation of Israel and for uh, its spiritual condition, because under them, uh, Israel had moved away from God. And so here's what's going on. God is about to change leadership. Now, it's still going to play out over a number of years, but God is in the process of changing leadership. And uh, that's important because that's a part of what He's up to uh, and the big thing that He's doing. It sounds like a pretty, um, a, a pretty negative kind of story when you read about these guys, but the backside of it is that God was doing something. Always remember this, that even when you look out and you say, things are bad, or things aren't good, or my life is tough, and things aren't working. God is working behind the scenes. And that was the case uh, uh, here. Uh, They had abused the process. They had taken the people of God down a path that 
that um, was displeasing to God. But there's this all-important statement that is made uh, in verse 17. Look at this. It says uh, that their sin was very great. And, and notice, underline this statement, in the sight of the Lord. Because that's an operative phrase there, because it is what reminds us that God was watching. They thought somehow because of their uh, privileged position in the, uh, uh, the work of the priestly work, that they were somehow exempt from the watching eyes of God. And, and so what they were doing is they were abusing the sacrifices that people were bringing to God. And they just assumed they could get away with it. And they were enriching themselves. They were, they were charlatans. They were religious charlatans is what they were. And they just thought, well, because of our, our position and who we are, we can just keep on doing this and get by with it. But their, their activity was being watched and observed by God. So God is always working. God is always watching. And as it was in this case, and it is in our case, God was working behind the scenes to do something. So let me begin today's message by giving you three things that God was doing behind the scenes. They, weren't, they didn't, weren't aware of it, but God was doing it. It's still true today. Number one, God was dealing with problems. Behind the scenes, God deals with problems. God was aware of their problems. He was aware that Israel's leadership was a problem. God was working on all of that. And sometimes in your life, you may think, well, God doesn't know the problems that I'm dealing with. God knows the problems. He knows your problems. He knows a nation's problems. He knows a church's problem. God knows the problem. And behind the scenes, God is working on the problems. He's working on the problems in your life. That's why it's so important that we trust Him even when we don't understand what's going on in our life or around Him. In fact, listen to 1 Samuel chapter 3. If you were to go over verse 11, the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. What was he saying there? He was saying, I'm about to do something. He tells Samuel. Now Samuel starts out in this, this book. He's born and then he grows up serving God in the, uh, uh, in the priestly work. And he, he grows up. And after he's grown into a young man, God tells him something. He says, I'm about to do something that, man, it'll cause the ears of everybody that hears to tingle. It's going to be something unlike anything that they've seen or experienced. What does, what does it tell us? It tells us that God's working, right? God was working behind the scenes. They didn't know it. Why? To display uh, uh, his, uh, or to deal with his problems. But he was also working behind the scenes to direct his people. Why did his people need direction? Because they had bad leadership. They had had bad political leadership. As I said, Eli and the, the priestly work also influenced the, the national kind of political work, you might say. For Israel, God and government uh, were, uh, were connected. And, and the fact is, as their leaders went, so their nation went. And because Eli and them had not been faithful uh, in the role that they were entrusted to, the nation declined as well. So they had political leadership problems. They had spiritual leadership problems. Because not only had the nation as a nation declined, but they had declined 
severely from a spiritual perspective. And Eli and the priestly lineage was responsible for the spiritual direction of the nation. So, so God works behind the scenes, and He was here uh, to deal with problems, but also to direct His people, to get them back on course. He was working there. They didn't understand it. They didn't know it. But God was uh, at work. And then third, God will work behind the scenes in our life to display His power. If you go over to chapter 7 uh, in 1 Samuel and look at verse 9, you'll see an example of this very thing. It says, So Samuel took a nursing lamb and he offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering... The Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but look at this. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. Did you get that? That's just one of many examples where God was at work behind the scenes, and He heard Samuel. He didn't hear Eli, or He didn't hear uh, Eli's wicked sons, but He heard Samuel because Samuel was in charge now of, of leading the people of God, giving direction to them. The Philistines were about to attack, and Samuel cried out to God. God heard Samuel's uh, 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 prayer, and God thundered from on high. Why? To display His power. God's at work. He's at work to uh, deal with problems. He's at work to direct His people. And He's at work to display uh, His power. Uh, and these three things that I mentioned there to start are, are what I would consistently say are true of God through the ages. That these three things, and other things for sure that God is doing, but God is working behind the scenes, even when you don't see it, to deal with problems and to direct your life and to display uh, His power. Why? Because He is up to something big, and it's probably and most likely bigger than anything you can imagine. Now, there's a clear reason why God was doing these things in Israel and it gets back to his awareness. It gets back to the fact that he is aware of what they were doing, what they needed to be doing, and what had to happen for them to do that. And so God was aware. And, and let me show you, and this is where I want to meet, uh, move to kind of the meat of the message, is I want to show you then uh, that there were three things that God was aware of. When he looked at this and and we get this profile of Eli and his sons, uh, it is to remind us that probably the children of Israel didn't realize exactly how wicked they were. Maybe so, maybe not, but God did. And God was aware of three things about them. He was aware, number one, of their worthless religion. Their worthless religion. Notice it says in verse 12, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now listen to me. It didn't say that they didn't know about the Lord. It didn't say they didn't know. It said they didn't know the Lord. There's a big difference, isn't there? They knew about the Lord. They had grown up under their father in his priestly uh, work. They knew about God. They could probably talk about God, but they did not know God. There's a big difference than knowing about God and knowing God. A man recently asked me this question. Recently asked this question. And with tears in his eyes, he said, Pastor, what's the difference between 
knowing about God here and knowing God here? Well, that's the right question because our world is full of people that know about God. Did you know our churches are full of people that know about God? But many don't know God. They had been in a religious environment all their life. And so they knew about God. But it says they didn't know God. And as a result, listen, they were worthless men. It's a sad commentary when we say of somebody who holds a spiritual or religious position that they don't know about God. Would you agree? That's a pretty sad commentary to say, well, they know about God, but they don't know God. But I want to tell you, it's just as sad to hear about anyone that knows about God and is merely religious but doesn't know God at all. I think about Paul. He was standing in the book of Acts chapter 17. Um, He is at the Areopagus. That's right below the Acropolis in Athens. And it was a gathering place for religious people. And they would come and they would sit there and they would discuss various philosophies of various different kinds of gods that they believed existed. They even had idols to all these gods. And you name it, they had an idol to it. If they could think of it, they put an idol up there. And then they would, they would come and gather in this place and they would talk about all the various gods. And they would philosophize and, and speak religiously about all of them. And they were superstitious. They were afraid they would miss a god. And so... Uh, they have an idol uh, to a god that they call the unknown god. It's kind of a form of religious political correctness for them. They were saying, well, in case we miss one, let's, let's put an unknown one here and we can say that's the unknown god. Well, Paul sees this and he makes an interesting statement to them. He says, O men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious. He said, because even as I was coming this way, I saw that you have an idol to the unknown God. He said, that's the real God, and that's the God I've come to talk to you about. But he said, said, I perceive that you're very religious. You know, history is full of religion. Someone has said that man is incurably religious. That he's going to find something to worship. Even if it's himself, he's going to find something to worship. These guys were religious, but they weren't related. They were religious in their their motions, but they did not have a relationship with God. They didn't know God personally, and that's the difference maker. If you're here, if you're watching by live stream or television, I want to remind you of something. It's not about being religious. Religion doesn't get you into the kingdom of God. Only a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about denominations. It's not about, look, you're not going to get into heaven if you stand before God and say, well, I was a Baptist. God's not going to say, oh, well, that's the difference maker. If you say, I'm a Methodist or Presbyterian or Church of Christ or whatever denomination you are of, that's not what gets you into the kingdom of God. What gets you into the kingdom of God is a relationship with the king through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the only thing that's going to get you there. A Pew Research saw a, a, a study on the religious landscape of America back just a few years ago uh, had a stunning, they made a stunning revelation. And it was that, listen, Two-thirds, it said in this poll, two-thirds of Christians believe that many different religions can lead to eternal life. That many different religions can lead to eternal life. And 50% of all Christians, according to the study, believe that some non-Christian religions can lead 
to uh, eternal life as well. The fact is, that's just not true. Jesus said he's the only way. There's one way and only one way. By the way, Jesus didn't say there's one denomination and only denomination. That's not what we're talking about. But today, tragically, many people think, well, your religion will get you there. My religion will get me there. That religion will get you there. A lot of religions will get you there. Only a relationship with Jesus Christ will get you there, period. That's what Jesus said. And everything else in the grand scheme of eternity, you might say, is kind of worthless religion, like, like the worthless religion of these young men. And worthless religion, there's some things it won't do for you. It won't fill your soul. You can't feel, now you can be very religious and be involved in a lot of religious activity, but it won't fill your soul. Eventually you'll just kind of wear out of doing that. And I've seen many who started out in a lot of religious activity and eventually they just walked away from God and everything. Why? It's because they were connecting or trying to connect with God through their religious activity. Now religious activity is a wonderful thing if it is the result of your relationship, but it is not the means to a relationship. It won't fill your soul. Blaise Pascal, the Greek mathematician and uh, philosopher, said this, there is within uh, all of humanity a God-shaped vacuum and only God can fill it. Nothing else will fill it. Religion won't fill it. Vocation won't fill it. Money won't fill it. Health won't fill it. The only thing that will fill it is a personal relationship with God. So worthless religion won't fill your soul. It won't sustain you in the storms. It won't get you through the storms of life. It, It won't empower you to live for God. We need power, don't we, to live for God? I mean, we need a a supernatural power. You don't have it. And the reason a lot of people that wear out doing religious things is because they're doing it in their own strength and power. They're not doing it through the relational uh, uh, presence of the Holy Spirit. You just can't do it in your own power. Uh, Worthless religion won't get you excited about God. that'll, That'll wane real quick. And worthless religion won't take you deeper with God. You won't go any deeper. Now, you may get more religious... But it won't take you any deeper with God. Now, I'm afraid there are too many people today that, that are kind of like the sons of Eli there. They, they practice religion, but they have no relationship with Christ. They have no re- and if that's you today, listen, you change that before uh, this, uh, this time is over. And I wonder, have you ever wondered about people that seem to be so tuned into God and so tuned in to, to uh, religious things and so uh, eager and so devoted, but then one day they just kind of walk away. Have you, ever, have you ever witnessed that? You ever saw something? What happened? They just suddenly walked away. They turned away. One day they just stopped following God. I heard about one uh, uh, person recently that for years was just uh, uh, so uh, committed to uh, the things of the faith and then uh, the next thing you know turned away and became an atheist. And so what causes that? What causes that? Well, the Bible gives us the answer. It says in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. They weren't really a part of the family of God to start with. And then Jesus, you remember what Jesus said? He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Y'all remember that? Not everyone. And he, and, and he says, but only the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. And then he goes on and he kind of clarifies it. He says, and one day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Isn't that interesting? You know what he, did you get what they were saying? They were talking about all the religious things. And I did this for you. I did this for you. I did this. This is all religious activity. Not a thing wrong with the things they did. The problem was that they had no relationship. It was just religious activity. And Jesus said in that, that final time, he said, depart from me. I didn't know you. You were religious, but you weren't related to me. And we all, uh, look, it's not a bad thing to every once in a while and examine ourselves. Paul says to, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, he says, examine yourself, test yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith, lest indeed you fail the test. Why? Because there are a lot of people that are going around saying, oh yeah, I'm a follower of God. I'm a follower of God. I do things that are religious for God. And yet Jesus said in that day, many will say, but we did this, and he'll say, depart from me. I didn't know you. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. And so their problem, uh, Eli, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, and many problems that we encounter today, pure and simple, are just religion. It's just religion has been substituted for a relationship with Jesus. It was their problem, it is often our problem, and so we must not make the mistake of confusing religion or religious activity with having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now here's the second thing that God was also aware of. So God was aware of their worthless religion, but God was also aware of their wicked routine, and it reminds us God knows everything about us. Now here's what they were doing, here's what's going on. They were abusing the offering. So the people would come to bring their offering and that what they would do is they would boil this offering and then, then they would offer the choice meat of the offering uh, on the altar of God, okay, as a sacrifice to God. And then whatever remained, the servants of the priests would come and they would take that out and it would become, it's what the priests would live off of. They would eat the leftovers, if you will, of the offering that was sacrificed, okay? And there was a lot of good stuff in that, but, but uh, here's what happened. The sons of Eli had changed things around. And they were now saying, here's how we're going to do this. And so people would come, and they would come with their sacrifices, and they get ready to boil these in their cauldrons or pots, it says, whatever they were cooking them in before they offered it as a sacrifice. And these servants came and said, wait a minute, we've changed the rules. We're going to take the best stuff before you ever even cook it, and we're going to give it to the priest. The priest wants the choicest meat first, and then you can cook the rest and give it to God. That's what was going on. And God was watching They were robbing God, in effect. They were saying, you know, we're going to take this. God can have the leftovers. By the way, that's a a message all its own, isn't it? Do you give God the best or the leftovers? But this was their routine. And their sinful behavior had become the normal routine for them. God was watching. God saw it all. They, I guess, were naive to believe that God wasn't. But he was seeing it all, and this became the norm for them. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, before he was saved, he was a notorious character. In fact, there's a story that Augustine told that uh, because he was so notorious that uh, on one occasion he's walking down the street after he had trusted Christ as his Savior. And on the other side of the the street, 
was a prostitute, and she called his name. Augustine! And he didn't even look her way. He just kept walking. (laughs) And she called out again, Augustine! He didn't, you know. Finally, she called out, Augustine! It's me! And he stopped, and he turned back and looked at her and said, Yes, it's you, but thank God it's not me anymore. That's the kind of character he had been. And of his nature to sin, he said this, My sin was all the more incurable before I knew Christ because I didn't think of myself as a sinner. He said, I didn't think much of my sin because I didn't think I was a sinner until I came to Christ. And then I realized what my sin was. And and these guys, that's who they were. They were justifying their sin. They were justifying what they, they were doing. Their behavior they were saying, this is acceptable because we've determined it's uh, acceptable. And yet, they didn't fool God. Now listen to me very carefully. Justifying wrong behavior in a culture, in your personal life, wherever it may be, first of all, it doesn't fool God. And justifying wrong behavior not only doesn't fool God, just because it's justified doesn't make it normal. Listen to what Isaiah the prophet wrote. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. To those who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. You know, uh, what Isaiah is talking about there is redefining things to make it fit. Or to make it acceptable. That's the world you're living in today. We redefine everything, right? We redefine sin. So that sin is no longer sin. It's just a choice, a behavioral choice. So many things, right? That's the culture you are living in, just like that. But you know what? God sees. Don't believe for an instance God doesn't know. Don't believe that God isn't watching. Don't believe that God isn't working. He sees, and And uh, just like he was working back then, and there were things coming that they didn't know, that's true uh, even now in the the culture and the world we're living in. They they had normalized what was sinful. And then they they had taken uh, and violated God's rules. Did you notice, um, look at verse 13. This is an interesting statement. It says, the custom of the priests. What does the customs of the priests mean? It means they'd changed the rules of God. This wasn't the norm. They had made it the norm. They had made their sin the norm. They had changed the rules of God. It was the customs of the priests, and it had begun in Shiloh and had moved all through Israel. But it wasn't the way God had told them to do it. They had been told how to do it, but they didn't like the way God told them to do it, so they changed the rules. And they made rules that they liked. So the new rules were, you give us the choice and give God the leftovers. And God was watching. Their wicked routine violated His rules. And then their wicked routine affected other people. Notice that they would go to these people, the Israelites, who were trying to obey God with their sacrifices, and they would say, we want the choice of your sacrifice. Well, no, let us cook it first and do it. Nope, and if you don't give it to us, we're going to take it by force. You know, here's a, a fact to remember. Our routines affect other people. 
And our routines can cause other people to stumble, which was certainly the case there. Uh, It hindered other people's ability to obey God. Sinful behavior often and almost always affects other people, other people in our life or around us. And then their wicked routine was self-serving. This was all about them. They were using religion to, um, to enhance their own lives. What was intended to be an act of worship toward God became an act of self-centeredness. So they took what was devoted to God and they took it and they devoted it to themselves. They made themselves, listen, the exception to God's Word. And God was aware. And God knew. And that leads to a final thing I want to give you this morning. I want you to see their willful rebellion. It says the men, verse 17, the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now, the Hebrew word here for uh, contempt means to despise or to blaspheme. It was a willing act of rebellion. That's how God saw it. Their sin was very great. It was blasphemous. That's what God says. It was was contemptuous. It It was despising the way of God. It was willful rebellion. And, uh, and, and the reason they acted so rebellious is because they had lost any real understanding of who God was, and they just lived in defiance of Him. They had no fear of God. They didn't take serious the commands of God. They, they didn't take serious the ways of God. They didn't take serious the expectations of God. Their actions were, if you will, in-your-face kind of rebellion. This is what we're going to do. Um, and so they, live, they lived in this kind of willful rebellion. Now, let me tell you why they did that, why they lived that way. Number one, they lived that way because they were sons. Some translations put it this way, but in the Hebrew in particular, it talks about they were sons of Belial. Literally, that's what's communicated in the Hebrew. They were sons. What is Belial? Belial's the devil. Why did they act this way? Why did they rebel this way? It's because they were sons of Belial. The fact is, all of us are either sons and daughters of Belial, or we're sons and daughters of God. There's not a third alternative. You're either in the camp of Belial, or you're in the camp of God. Jesus even talked about the fact that there are two roads. Remember that? There's a narrow road and a wide road. The wide road leads to destruction. The narrow road leads to life. He didn't say, and then there's a third alternative. He didn't say that. There's only only two paths that we can pick. And there's only two kingdoms that you can ultimately belong to. You either belong to the kingdom of the devil, Belial, or the kingdom of God. And by the way, if you're not in the kingdom of God, you're in the other kingdom, right? And so uh, they they were rebellious because, again, they were aligned with the wrong kingdom. They were also rebellious because they had no uh, fear of their earthly father. Now, Eli wasn't a good father. I'll just tell you that. You can read this story and you just find out that he just really dropped the ball and he didn't step up where a father needs to step up and where a father needs to be a father. He was not very good. And uh, even later in life, he finally starts trying to correct uh, Hophni and Phinehas, these wicked sons. He starts trying to correct them. Look at verse 25 of this chapter. Notice what it says. This is Eli talking to his sons, all right? If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? 
Notice this next line. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now look, there's some theology there that we don't have time to get into deeply, but the fact is there comes a point in time where God says, I've had enough. I've had enough. But part of their problem is they wouldn't listen to their earthly father. They wouldn't listen to his counsel. He tried to counsel them, albeit he was late to the game. He was late to the party. God had already decided, I'm going to kill them. I'm, I'm going to kill them. And there's a tragic ending to their life later on, chapter 4 and following. There's this tragic ending to their life. See, God was up to something. He was changing the leadership out. They were rebellious because they wouldn't listen to their father, father's counsel. But then third, they were rebellious because they had no fear, and this is most important, of their heavenly father. Now, they may have had it when they were young. There's no indication. Or if they ever had it, they had lost it by now. They had no fear of God. Dr. Owens Hawkins said that the concept of the fear of the Lord is the single most important missing element in the church in our day. And I think he's right. I think, um, I think we've lost the fear of God. Um, and their will, willful rebellion was essentially the result in the end that they had no longer any fear of God. And here's, what, here's kind of how the progression happens. When we, when we forget that God's aware of our lives, okay? We forget God is aware, that God is watching, that God knows everything about me, when we forget that, that God is aware of our lives, He's aware of our hearts, He's aware of our behavior, when we forget that, we will lose the fear of God. It's only a matter of time until you'll lose the fear of God. When you forget that God knows everything about you, when you, you will lose the fear of God. And listen, when you lose the fear of God, the next progression is, you will move toward willful rebellion against God. You'll engage in sin that is against God willfully because you'll be, when you forget God's watch, watching you, you forget God is aware, you forget that there's a need to fear God, and if I don't fear God, I, I have no fear of any consequences of rebellious action toward God. And then I can start believing lies or I can start redefining and reinterpreting things. Now, you know, for years we've been, we've been so cautious when we talk about fearing God. Because what we've tried to do is we want people to understand how much God loves them. And I led him into Christ recently and I was telling him how much God loved him. Um, but what we've done is we've tried to so keep from hurting somebody's feelings or scaring them that we have avoided talking to them about the healthy kind of fear of God. Well, I don't want people. Jesus is love. God is love. He is all of that. If He weren't love, none of us would exist. But, but as a result of that, wanting everybody to feel comfortable with God. Oh, God's such a... Hey, I, I feel comfortable with God. Look, I'm okay with being comfort, comfortable with God, but I'm not okay with not being afraid of God. Does that make sense? And so what we've done, if we've tried to get people 
to understand love of God, but we've given up the, a healthy fear of God. There's a time to be afraid of God. The writer of Hebrews said it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so what we have to understand, when you, when you lose an aware, the knowledge that God is aware of everything going on in your life, then you will, you will move to a loss of fear. You don't really fear Him. And if you don't fear Him, guess what? You'll willfully rebel against Him. Now, let me just put this little footnote on this. What we will do sometimes is say, oh, but fear means to revere Him and to hold Him in awe. And the answer is, yes, it does. But you know, the reason I hold Him in reverence and awe is because He's terrifying. And I also have this kind of healthy fear. God is terrifying. I want to tell you something. Listen, people, if, if, if God entered this building, I mean, he's here as he's promised, but if he physically manifested in this building, we wouldn't go, wow, that's pretty cool. I'm telling you, we would be, we'd be flat on our faces. We would be terrified. We would be afraid to lift our head it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. One of the things, one of the reasons so many people live in willful sin is because they've lost the fear of God. Well, they had no fear of God. And by the way, religion will always keep you from living with any kind of awe or reverence. If, if it's just religion, it's just motions. And they were religious. So how's your fear factor? I mean, when it comes to God, how's your fear factor? I want to close and tell you a story by one of my favorite Bible teachers, R.T. Kendall. And he tells it in several of his books. And I want to share it with you because I think it, it gets us to understand the point that God is aware and God is aware of how we respond to Him. God is aware of how we don't respond to Him. God is aware. Here's what Kendall, the story tells. He says, when I was 15, we had a great evangelist at our church named W.M. Tidwell. He was an eccentric uh, preacher, but he also was a legend in the Nazarene movement. And on the final Sunday morning of a two-week meeting in Ashland, Kentucky, I was called out of my Sunday school class that preceded the worship service, and Dr. Tidwell uh, asked if he could see me. He said he planned to preach that morning on the parable about the man who did not have the wedding garment and was then bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's told in Matthew chapter 22. And he wanted to do a visible live illustration. And he asked me if I, would, if I would help. Then four men in the congregation that day to help illustrate the parable had been designated at the right time for, to tie my hands and my feet and then carry me up the center aisle and out of the church as an illustration of the man in the parable who did not have the wedding garment and was sent into outer darkness. And so at the right time, he sat down on the front 
these men came at the right time in the parable. They bound him hand and foot and they led him out. They carried him out uh, of the church hand and foot to illustrate what the parable was talking about. Kendall goes on to say that, that uh, people after the service spoke about the, the solemnity of that moment and how it, it impacted people. And uh, he said, except for one young teenage girl, her name was Patsy, Patsy Branham. And he said, it just so happened that she sat not far from my mother, and my mother remembered that Patsy was very irreverent and disrespectful during the sermon, even mocking the preacher in his preaching. And then when they carried me out, my mom said she laughed at me watching the four men carry me out of the church. It came time for the invitation, and Dr. Tidwell uh, stopped the invitation. They were singing, and he, he stopped the invitation all of a sudden, just said, J -j stop. And they stopped. Everybody was standing. Everything came to a halt. And then Dr. Tidwell said this, someone here is getting their final call. The congregation remained standing. Dr. Tidwell refused to close the invitation, turned it over to the pastor. The pastor didn't feel, feel led. He said, we're just going to remain until you feel led to, to leave or whatever. And so people stood for a while, some sat for a while, and after a while, finally everybody had, had left the building. Well, he said, that's kind of how that, that day uh, ended for us. He said, then... The next day, I came home from delivering the newspaper, the Ashland Daily Independent, which I did every day. And when I arrived home, my mother was waiting on the front porch for me. And she looked at me and said, did you hear about Patsy? She asked me that question with anxiety in her voice and tears in her eyes. I said, no, what do you mean? She said, Patsy was killed an hour ago as she came walking home from school. A speeding car rammed into another car, which careened onto the sidewalk and hit Patsy, who was killed instantly. I knew Patsy, Kendall says, and I was stunned. She was only 16. Would God hold a teenage girl responsible for her attitude and her actions from the previous day? Haven't we all been guilty of the same sort of mockery at one time or another? Or is that why the Holy Spirit would lead Dr. Tidwell to say, someone is getting their last call. Well, I don't know. But perhaps someone here today or watching on live stream or listening by radio or podcast, maybe someone is getting their last call. Meaning this will be the last time God reaches out to you to help you understand how to have a relationship with Him. Friend, God is up to something big. And He wants you to be a part of that. He loves you. Jesus died for you so you could be a part of the big kingdom plan of God. But it is up to you to be on the right side of what He is doing. Let's pray.
Lord, I, I don't know. You didn't tell me anything about somebody's last call. I, so I don't know, but I know it is possible that this could be your last call to someone. And I pray, Father, that those that are listening, those under the sound of my voice, whether live stream or in this live audience, that if they need you today, they will turn to you and call on you to be their Savior. And Father, I pray for those who have been religious but not related, like the sons of of, uh, Eli who have gone through the motions But they're not aware that you're aware that it's just motions. Except today, make them understand that their religious activity will not make them right with you. So speak in these moments before we're gone. For others, Father, perhaps looking for a church home, a family to belong to, whatever it may be, let this day be that day for them. Speak now in these moments before we're gone. We're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me for our invitation? I'll be here at the front and we'll have staff over here on these side aisles. You come to any of us if there's a decision for you to make. Maybe you called on the Lord today. Whosoever shall call on the Lord will be saved. Maybe you say, I need help. We'll help you with that. I helped... Uh, I helped a man earlier today with that very thing, how to call on the Lord. And maybe you need to do that. I want to invite you to come and say, Pastor, I need help. I come to one of these staff. I, 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 want, to, I want Jesus. I don't want to be religious. I want Christ. I invite you to come. Maybe you're here and, uh, and you say, I need a church home. I invite you to slip out. As others have done today already, some confessing Christ, some to become a part of our Ridgecrest family. Maybe that's you. You need a church home and a church family. We'd love to have you here. Hope you'll come and make this your home. Maybe you want to come and pray around this altar. It's been used a lot, a lot today already. And I invite you to come and kneel before the Lord. You just want to talk with Him about whatever it is. Maybe you just, you're praying for somebody you got something that's up in your life. You just need to talk to Him and you want to humble yourself and pray and seek His face. Maybe you're joining us by media and you say, what do I do? Well, there's instructions on your screen. Just follow those instructions and, and we'll take it from there. You can use your tear-off panel, all of that kind of stuff if you wish and drop it in the baskets, but I want to call you publicly. And so as Bradley leads us this morning, I invite you in the balcony or this ground floor, you slip out.